Good morning again. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23, verses 11 through 35 will be our sermon text for this morning. Acts 23, verses 11 through 35. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning because you are the Lord, as we just sang, and we come to you to find strength and hope in the midst of our troubles and in the midst of our trials and uh, in the midst of the, the waters that threaten to drown us and the fires which threaten to consume us and, Father, life which so often seems overwhelming and terrifying. Father, we come to you and we seek you and we long to hear from you and we pray that you would speak to us this morning. I, I, I pray, Father, that your word would go out and that your truth would be clearly heard and uh, that you would minister to us right where we need it. Uh, Father, we thank you that your word and your spirit are uh, more wonderful than, than I can say or speak or preach, uh, but that you can take your word and apply it directly to our hearts by the power of your spirit pray that you would do that this morning. Uh, bless our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts 23, uh, beginning with verse 11, 11 through the end of the chapter. The following night, the Lord stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going outside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent." So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them 
when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Do you know the danger of a sermon on suffering? Well, there are lots of dangers, actually, uh, when you start talking about suffering. One of those dangers is oversimplification, right? I mean, your life, your trials, your suffering, your enemies, they just don't fit neatly into a box. So whenever people hear talks about suffering, they tend to see their circumstances as the exception, or they fault the speaker for what he or she didn't say. Because our suffering is so real and often so raw, whatever is said is taken very personally. Yet, nevertheless, I'm going to talk about responding to evil this morning and dealing with suffering and trials and troubles and pain. I feel like we talk about this a lot, and I think that's probably true, but I also think it's because Scripture speaks to it so often. And so we're going to talk about it again this morning. You can see on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline there. There are three points. We're going to talk about the fact that some actions are evil, that your suffering is real, and that a good God is sovereign. So some actions are evil, your suffering is real, and a good God is sovereign. Uh, Before we jump into that, though, uh, let's look at the story. You know, Paul has come to Jerusalem to bring an offering an offering from the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians, from the Gentile churches to the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem. And while in Jerusalem, Paul participated in a purification rite. And while in the temple undergoing ritual purification, Paul is accused of speaking against the Jewish people and the Jewish law and the Jewish temple and defiling the holy place. The accusations are all false, of course, uh, but Paul is beaten by an angry mob rescued by the Roman police. He defends himself in speeches, first before the mob and eventually before the Jewish council. Everything Paul says, of course, only seems to make things worse. The mob gets angrier, the council is divided. Eventually, Jesus comes to Paul in a vision in Acts 23, verse 11. And Jesus says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this encouragement is pretty important. Uh, Not only has Paul's time in Jerusalem gone about as poorly as possible, but Paul's whole ministry, as we've seen it throughout the book of Acts, has been marked by persecutions. And it's about to get worse. 
Verse 12 says that some of the Jews, more than 40 of them, decided to make a plot to kill Paul. They even get the chief priests and elders in on it. They ask uh, the Roman tribune, the, the chief of police, as it were, to bring Paul down to them for questioning so that they, the, the conspirators can murder Paul on the way. There's only one glitch in their plan, and that is that Paul's nephew hears of their plot. It's kind of an interesting little detail because we, we pretty much know nothing about Paul's family. Uh, we, we don't know what family he had, who was still alive. We don't know whether they too had become Christians or, or whether they were ashamed of him as a traitor. We know his father was a Roman citizen, and at least for a time his family lived in Tarsus. But here we find out two more details, right? Paul had a, uh, a little, at least one sister, and she had at least one son. Now, how did Paul's nephew hear about this plot? Was he present in the council meeting? Uh, if so, how could he be there? Why was he there? Um, if, if he wasn't there, who blabbed, right? Who, who shared this uh, conspiracy in front of a little boy? All of those details are a mystery, right? We don't, we don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, the nephew hears, and uh, he finds Paul. He tells him about the plot. Paul sends him to the tribune, who takes the threat seriously. So he sends Paul after dark to Caesarea, uh, guarded by over 400 soldiers, which seems a bit extravagant. But again, the, the tribune, uh, Claudius, he takes this threat seriously, and he seeks to protect Paul as a Roman citizen. And he sends Paul to the governor, to Felix, and in his letter to Felix, explaining what's going on, Claudius makes himself out to be the hero. Right? He had rescued Paul, the Roman citizen. There's no mention of his binding and almost beating Paul, but you know, he has his facts basically right. It's important uh, for the last third of Acts right, uh, that, that Claudius declares Paul innocent of any Roman crime. We keep hearing that again and again from the mouths of Roman rulers. Paul is innocent of any crime, any civil crime. So he says in verse 29, Paul is being accused only of questions about their law. Felix, uh, the governor, he, he does the right thing. He decides to hear Paul's case once his accusers arrive. What I want you to notice here is uh, there's, a, there's a pattern, a pattern that we actually find again and again in Scripture. Uh, there is, is animosity and false accusations and murderous plots. But at the same time, a God who is overruling it all to bring good out of evil. Think about it. Think about, uh, think about for example, the, the animosity of Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis. Uh, they were jealous. They actually plot to murder their brother. And that plot is only softened uh, to, to man-stealing, right, when they sell him into slavery because they realize they can make some money off the deal. And then Joseph's master's wife, you remember, falsely accuses him. He ends up in jail and is forgotten. But God uses that all the more to bring Joseph to the right hand of the seat of the most powerful government in his day. Or think of David, right? David is hunted by Saul, uh, later by his own son, but he trusts God in the midst of it all. God vindicates him and saves him, again, placing him in the place of government, making him king over all Israel. Or, of course, think about Jesus, He's falsely accused. He's plotted against by the Sadducees. Eventually, he's tried on, on trumped-up charges, and after, after being declared innocent by Pilate, 
he is executed for claiming to be the king of the Jews. But God uses that right, to exalt Jesus to the place of government. He's exalted to the highest place, the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. So there's this pattern that we see playing out in the life of God's people, a pattern that's really epitomized in, in Jesus, but we see it here in Paul as well. And, and with all of this trouble in Paul's life, not to mention Joseph's or David's or Jesus, right? I, I want you to notice, interestingly, how Paul doesn't respond. Uh, th these, are, these are maybe typical responses when trouble comes. Just think for a minute about how we might respond or people around us might respond to troubles. Uh, Paul is not, for one, he's not, he's not self-deluded, right? Uh, he doesn't say trouble. What trouble? Right? We, we, sometimes we cope by telling ourselves that everything's okay, nothing's wrong here, and we just ignore the problem. Paul doesn't do that. Uh, he, he's not tolerant of the evil or dismissive of it either, right? That's maybe more popular in our day when we think about troubles. Uh, he doesn't say, well, these men are just doing what their cultural and social context has programmed them to do. It's not really their fault. After all, I can't blame them. I can only blame society. Paul doesn't do that either. Uh, Paul doesn't put on just a stiff upper lip, right? He doesn't say, well, buck up, face what comes. There's no fighting it. Won't do any good to cry about it, right? Just accept what's coming to me. Uh, he, he doesn't make a, a religious defense. Uh, he doesn't say, well, don't blame God. It's not his fault that things go wrong. He doesn't have a martyr complex. You might think Paul has a martyr complex, but he doesn't. He, 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 he doesn't respond to trouble by saying, bring it on. I'm ready to die for Jesus' sake. Now, he does say he's ready to die for Jesus' sake, right? He is ready to die, but he's not seeking it out. In fact, he's going to actively uh, seek to uh, avoid being murdered by these 40 men. Um, he doesn't take, you know, maybe a, a more uh, Eastern response, right? He doesn't just say, well, suffering's not real. It's all in your head. Just stop desiring and there will be no trouble. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't go that direction. Um, he doesn't distract himself, right? That's what we often do. We pursue some earthly happiness to get our mind off our troubles. Uh, he doesn't play the hopeless victim, right? He, he's not Eeyore. He doesn't say, woe is me. Here it goes again. People are constantly out to get me, and there's nothing I can do about it. They'll probably kill me this time, and that will be the end of it. Can you imagine Paul saying that? That's Puddleglum, not Paul, right? Uh, Paul doesn't play the bitter sufferer, right? He, he's not bitter about it. Uh, you know, like, he, he doesn't cry out, like, I need this one more thing. Those stupid people, if they would just repent, everything would be fine. I can't stand them and their stubborn hearts, right? Why would God keep letting this happen to me? And, of course, he, he doesn't, you know, play Chuck Norris either. He doesn't kill the guards at night, take out the Tribune, blow up the prison complex while leaving the scene on a motorcycle. Why doesn't Paul respond in these kinds of ways? He doesn't delude himself. He, he doesn't dismiss their evil. He doesn't try to defend God. He, he doesn't get hopeless or angry or philosophical. He doesn't strike back. Why not? Well, because Paul knows what's really going on. He, he's not deluded. He's not content to live a lie. And so he responds in faith. And here I'm thinking, right, not just about what, what we'll see in this passage, the sort of the very small part that Paul plays in this passage, but uh, I'm thinking about Paul's repeated responses throughout the book of Acts as he faces trouble again and again. And we'll, we'll mention some of those as we go. Well, there, 
are, are three things that Paul surely knew and that the Bible teaches very clearly that we have to believe if we're going to respond to evil or trouble rightly. And the first one is that some actions are evil. Uh, now, that may seem obvious, but uh, I, don't, I don't know that it is. I think we have to say that. Uh, some actions really are evil. Uh, in, in, our, in our present day, sometimes we talk as if nothing is evil, right? At least that's what we're led to believe. Um, this seems to, to be where we have been anyway, right? Where you can't blame anyone for anything uh, because you can't say anything is evil, only... Uh, well, that's their personal preference, or it's sort of the uncontrollable, uncontrollable outcome of their biology plus their circumstances, right? It's not their fault. So the former is not blamable, it's just their preference, and the latter is not controllable. It's just their biology and their circumstances. And of course, if everything, if, if love and hatred and joy and sorrow and anger are reduced to, to biological or circumstantial factors, then we end up really with a complete lack of personal responsibility, Again, it's not my fault. And though we talk like this sometimes, actually even, even, even modern Americans know that this is not true. And all you have to do to, 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 to realize this is to listen to the news, right? Because there is frequent and clear moral outrage in the media about some things, right? And so, so the unlimited sovereignty of personal preference or the unlimited influence of biological determinism may be popular, but they're not livable, right? Because we get angry that the world isn't the way we know it should be. And think about the evil that was done to Paul in just this most recent episode, right? The, the animosity of the Jewish people to Paul's obedience to God, their murderous plot against him, the complicity of the chief priests and the elders of the people, those who were meant to teach and uphold the law are the very ones we see going against it. And in the face of this evil, we see again and again, uh, Paul neither just resigns to his fate nor pursues martyrdom. When persecution comes in, in Pisidian Antioch, at one point, Paul simply leaves. Uh, again, he, he flees Iconium to Lystra and Derbe. Derbe. When Paul is put in prison unjustly in Philippi, he doesn't hesitate to call the civil rulers to account. Acts 16, verse 36, But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The brothers send Paul away from the Thessalonian persecution in Acts 17. A few verses later, they do the same in Berea when the Thessalonian Jews begin to stir up trouble there. When he was about to be beaten, Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship in Acts 22 to avoid the, the pain and the trouble and possibly even death that might have come from that. And finally here, Paul does not simply accept the murder plot against his life, but he sends the boy to the tribune so something can be done about it. Now, now the reason I think this is, is important to take note is that sometimes, I think as Christians, we give the impression that when evil happens in our lives, we should just roll over and accept it. Right? We, sh we, should, we should not cause a fuss, not make a stink, just be nice. And yet that wasn't Paul's attitude at all. When necessary, he ran for his life. In fact, on more than one occasion, he snuck out of town or was lowered in a basket or some other such thing. Other times he spoke up and spoke out. He appealed to things like law and justice and rights. And so it's important to note, right, it's not more virtu virtuous to endure 
when you could speak out or simply walk the other way. And so when you think about the evil in your life, right, the struggles in your life, uh, you, you may not have murderous plots against you. I, I hope you don't. You may have no false accusers, uh, no persecution per se, you know, but people still throw rocks of one kind or another, big ones, little ones, right? We face daily uh, unkindnesses or see daily injustices. Often those who are closest to us become our enemies in the heat of the moment, our friends and our family as we fight and quarrel and consume one another, as James says. And even if you can honestly say, well, I have no human enemies whatsoever, right? All my relationships are just dandy. Well, there is the devil prowling around like a lion seeking to devour the people of God. And I mention him to say that actually you do have an enemy and he does wish evil for you. And we must recognize the reality of evil in the world, right? There is a, a, a personal evil even that is against us. There aren't just bad things that just happen. Right? There is an enemy out to get us, Scripture tells us. We shouldn't fall into superstition because of that. And yet, at the same time, we need to, we need to keep our eyes open. We need to realize right, that we do not fight with flesh and blood. And, of course, whether we run away or speak out with human troubles... Uh, we, we must run to God and cry out to him. In light of our great enemy, the devil, the, the accuser, right, the murderer, we, we run to God. Knowing that evil is personal, right, that, that there is a person, the devil, doesn't mean we take everything personally, and it doesn't mean that we attack people when bad things happen. It means that we know our battle is not with flesh and blood, but according to Ephesians 6.12, is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? We do have an enemy. When evil comes your way, call it what it is and know that you have an enemy and who is not simply a force but a person. And if you can flee evil and trouble in this life, do it. If you can be faithful to God while doing it. And if you can cry out for justice, do it. As Paul did. And then run to God no matter what and cry out to him for mercy and help and pray, deliver us from the evil one. And so we need to know that some actions are evil. It's okay to, to avoid persecution. It's okay to, to run when we have that opportunity and we can still be faithful to Jesus. And it's okay to cry out for justice when the time is right, as we see Paul doing. And so know that some actions are evil and two, know that your suffering is real. Um, in, in what do you delight? You know, one, one of the many false dichotomies that we come up with is uh, when it comes to suffering and happiness, it's about where delight is found. You know, we tend to delight in circumstances on the one hand. Uh, we delight in created things ahead of spiritual things. So we delight in our friends and our family, health and, and personal well-being. We delight in money and possessions accomplishment, a job well done, feeling like we've got somewhere in life. We delight in being known or acknowledged or praised. We delight in food and drink and sex. We delight in all these things until we don't, until they're not available to us or until we lose them or, or until we lose the power to enjoy them. And then what? You know, in the church, sometimes we, we often simply follow the world in this, right? We give our hearts to created things. When trouble comes our way, right, we just medicate with Netflix binges and shopping sprees. You know, I, I've noticed in my own heart that um, 
I don't even have to buy something expensive to make myself feel good, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, just getting something new, something different, right? Something I didn't have a moment ago, and all of a sudden, my, my whole attitude changes. Or, in the church, we react to the world's focus on delighting in the flesh by saying, you know, just obey. Just do the right thing. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you're going through, right? Just trust God and obey. Uh, you know, again, uh, our answers to sadness, to trouble, to suffering, they, they often become either cope through indulgence or cope through self-denial. Just pretend, pretend it's not real or just muscle through one way or another. So we muscle, through, muscle your way through your sadness or eat your way through your sadness. And both are variants of pretending that everything is okay as we open up our second gallon of ice cream and keep downing it. Paul doesn't pretend everything is okay. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't muscle through. We don't see Paul's subjective suffering in Acts, right? We see the objective side. Uh, he is stoned and left for dead in Acts 14. We're not told how he feels about that, though we might guess. You might think Paul seems to just muscle through. I mean, he rarely seems even phased. Uh, he just keeps going from city to city, trial to trial. And so how do we know that he's not just muscling through? How do we know that's not how we're to respond to troubles? Uh, for one, we have Paul's own letters. I think about it. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul did not just muscle through. At times, his trials in Asia caused him to despair of life itself. Have you ever been there? Right? Despairing? Or in 2 Corinthians 11, 24-25, when Paul describes his many trials, he includes sleeplessness, anxiety, feeling weak, and indignant, angry, upset about what's going on. Have you ever been unable to sleep, right? Because whatever, was, whatever you were going through, it just kept swirling around in your head again and again. You just kept thinking about it. Paul had been there. Have your circumstances made you feel weak and powerless and impotent and unable to do anything worth doing? Have you had friends who were being misled or misguided and you were burning up inside because you couldn't stand to see them go down the wrong path? You, were, you mourned for them. You wept for them. You were angry for them. This was Paul's life. Uh, it was full of emotions that came from his many trials. And of course, even if Paul didn't give us this glimpse into his emotional life, right? we know from Scripture that really the only way to deal with suffering is through mourning. There's only one way to deal with sadness, and that's to feel it. You know, the best thing Job's friends ever did Job's friends were great for seven days, right? They just sat with him for seven days, silent and mourning. Most of us would have tried to cheer Job up after seven minutes, much less seven days. I mean, come on, Job. There's no reason to lie around in dust and ashes. It's time to trust God and move on with your life. Rejoice in the Lord, Job, right? Even in your suffering. Get up. Move on. Or worse, right, Job, you know, I've got to say, I think you're depressed, I mean, maybe you should see a doctor. Of course Job is depressed, right? This wealthy family man just lost his livestock, his business, his wealth, and his children in one day. How do you expect him to respond? 
Or think about Jesus. There's a man named Lazarus whom Jesus loved. He loved Lazarus. He loved his sisters, Mary and Martha. And, but Lazarus dies. And Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who created all things by the word of his power, the one who holds the universe in his hands, comes to the tomb and sees the mourners. And here's what we're told in John chapter 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, deeply moved. Jesus, the one who controls all things by the word of his power, greatly troubled. And it goes on when he, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You see, when Jesus was faced with sadness and pain and death, how does he respond? He responds by weeping, by mourning over what death has brought. See, our suffering is real. And the only way to deal with it is to mourn it, right? to weep, to cry, to sit in dust and ashes for seven days if that's what's necessary. If you don't mourn it, you're living in an unreality. Right? We're living a lie if we are unwilling to allow ourselves to mourn. And of course, lies always tear us apart. And so some, some actions are evil, right? We need to run to God. We need to cry out to Him. And our suffering is real. We need to mourn and weep and cry. But third, God is sovereign. We have a good God who is in control. And therefore, we can trust and we can hope and we can obey and we can rejoice. Um, you know, if we skip mourning and go straight to trusting, we're, we're, we're called insensitive. I mean, if I were to say to you in the midst of your, you know, raw struggles, you just need to trust Jesus and, and be happy and rejoice in the Lord and move on, right? Uh, well, that would be insensitive. And yet, if we, if we start mourning, but we never trust, we're unbelieving. Right? I, I had a friend say once that he didn't want to think about his past because he was afraid that the sadness would consume him. He had a bad past. He didn't want to think about it. He didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to mourn it. He just wanted to forget about it. Why does mourning overwhelm us? When does mourning overwhelm us? It overwhelms us when we have no hope. When the mourning is bigger than our hope, when the sadness is greater than our hope. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, there, there are two kinds of grieving, Paul says, and the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that non-Christians grieve, but Christians do not. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is that non-Christians grieve without hope, while Christians are able to grieve with hope. There is hope in the midst of the grieving. It's not hope that takes away the grieving, but hope in the midst of it. In Deuteronomy 14, there's this odd passage, right? Uh, as many of them in Deuteronomy are to us, uh, Moses says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. 
What is he getting at? Well, it's possible what he's getting at is that there should be a limit to your grief. Your grief should not cause you to do self-harm. We should grieve, but it need not consume us because we can have hope. Right? Why, why, doesn't, why don't we need to be consumed by grief? Well, because we have a God who is sovereign and good. A God who is for us and in control. Now think about Paul's situation, right? There's a plot against his life. The Jewish leaders are in on it. The same thing you may remember happened to Jesus, and it did not end well, at least at first. But Paul's nephew just happens to overhear the plot. And the centurion happens to obey Paul when he says, take the boy to the tribune. The centurion does it. Uh, the tribune happens to believe the boy and, and care enough to do something about it. Then he sends 470 soldiers to guard Paul on his way. And, and the tribune's letter, in a sense, is right, right. He did rescue Paul from the hand of the angry mob, but only because ultimately God was at work to rescue Paul from the hand of the tribune. See, at any point, things could have gone terribly wrong for Paul. Now, I know you, you might say, well, that, that's just all coincidences or just happy circumstances. How can you say that these are somehow evidences of God's sovereignty in Paul's life? Well, you know, coincidences they may be or, or just ha happy circumstances. You know, one bishop said uh, one time, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. <laughs> and sure, it's easy to dismiss all of these happy accidents as mere coincidence and nothing more. But that's looking at the world through the wrong lens. Besides, if we walk back just a few verses, here's what we find the moment before we're told of this plot in verse 11. Jesus appears to Paul and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. See, G Jesus promises Paul that he will make it to Rome. All of these happy circumstances are just Jesus fulfilling his promise. I'm going to bring you to Rome, Paul. Despite the plots, despite the, despite the murderers, uh, despite their anger, despite the trials, I am going to bring you to Rome. See, the truth of the matter is, God has been at work thwarting his, the enemies of his people for quite some time. And throughout Scripture, there are any number of stories of God at work through otherwise insignificant circumstances to save his people. Sometimes God's not even mentioned in that. You, you have the, the book of Esther, right? Well, the whole book is about God saving his people through, through, through quiet circumstances of life. Ruth as well, in, in an even more intimate story where God is at work to care for Ruth and Naomi. The book of Ezra right, gives us a picture of God using pagan rulers to accomplish his purpose to rebuild the temple. Did Cyrus really know what was going on? Cyrus, king of Persia, really know what was going on when God uh, appointed him to rebuild the temple? Probably not, but God was using that pagan ruler to accomplish his purposes. See, whatever trials or troubles are going on, God is in control. And that, that's not meant to cause some philosophical turmoil, but just trust and rest and hope. And, and we struggle with this, right? We struggle with the idea of a, of a sovereign God. I mean, especially in the midst of suffering. God sovereign in suffering? I mean, that, that almost sounds demonic, right? Or evil or twisted. We have trouble holding together a good and a sovereign God. But he is both good and in control. And so because we have uh, uh, trouble holding those two things together, we often end up with an impotent yet loving God 
who wishes things were better but is un unable to do anything about it. And so we kind of get God off the hook for evil. And the world, of course, the other hand is the world, as we've already said, goes to the other extreme to kind of a full-blown impersonal determinism uh, where uh, fate for the superstitious or the scientific laws, right, where everything is produced to biological uh, and circumstantial factors. So we either get God off the hook for evil or we get people off the hook for evil. So we prefer either an impotent loving God or an impersonal deterministic force. We do the same thing in the church, right? When trouble happens, we either say God had nothing to do with it, don't blame him, or we dismiss or even excuse the evil of evil men because of God's sovereignty. But here's the thing. If evil men are not responsible, I really have no gripe. And if God is powerless, I have no hope. But our God is sovereign and good, and so I have hope. How can we know that, right? I mean, how can we know that God is sovereign and good and he's at work, he's for us and at work in our circumstances for us. Well, we see both God's love for us and his sovereignty in the cross. I mean, God demonstrates his love for sinners in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus faced trouble, persecution, and death for us. And there at the cross, he bore our sin and God's just anger for sin in our place. How did Jesus get to the cross? Well, men plotted against him. But even their plots were, according to Peter on the day of Pentecost, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Again, in Acts 3.18, Peter says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So God ordained that Jesus would suffer. He fulfilled what he ordained. And then God raised Jesus from the dead, thwarting his enemies, not by stopping them, but by subverting their ends for his. See, our joy in suffering is that the Father loves us. How do we know that? We look at the cross. The Father loves me. Our hope in suffering is that the Father is in control. How do we know that? We look at the cross and the resurrection. And that as God brought his son through trials for his good purposes and raised him from the dead, so we will face trials according to God's good purposes and he will bring us through to the other side. Right, it's Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for God is with me in the valley. See, Jesus, who has been where we are and worse, will be with us in the midst of it all and shepherd us through it. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our joy. Jesus is with us in the midst of it all and will see us through. You know, where are you experiencing what Paul calls light and momentary afflictions? Maybe they don't seem so light, and maybe they don't seem so momentary. Maybe it feels heavy and burdensome and wearisome. Maybe you're not going through troubles at the moment, but can I say, right, get ready, because they will come. Where will you turn? If you don't put down deep roots in a God who is sovereign and good now, your faith will be shaken. And suddenly you'll be asking, where is God? And what happened to his love? And is he not able to care for me, his child? And I have no doubt that much suffering is a mystery, right? I mean, why does God allow it all? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I do know that our good shepherd is with us in the valley, and he will see us through, and he will bring us home. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we don't, we don't get it. Uh, there's so much that we don't understand. We don't understand why. We don't understand how fully. 
I don't understand what you're doing. But Father, help us to trust you in the midst of it all. Help us to see Jesus and see the cross. See your love displayed there for us in giving your son. See your sovereign power in the resurrection. And help us to know that you are caring for your children. And you will bring us through. Help us to find hope in that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.